WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to NYC Now. I'm Janae Pierre for WNYC. We begin in Manhattan, where New York City's independent budget office says over 13,000 rent-stabilized apartments have been sitting empty for at least two years. The IBO included the number in a new report released this week. Those apartments have become a hotly contested subject as the city faces a dire housing shortage and record high rents. Tenant groups say landlords are warehousing the apartments to force a change to laws that cap rents on regulated units. But owners say it's just too expensive to renovate some apartments. Overall, less than 5% of rent-stabilized apartments were vacant last year. In Brooklyn, a temporary shelter could soon be in the works for more than 2,000 adult migrants. WNYC's John Campbell has more. Governor Kathy Hochul says the federal government has offered to lease space for the shelter at Floyd Bennett Field, a former airfield along Jamaica Bay. The governor first asked President Biden to build a shelter there in May as New York City struggled to find beds for thousands of migrants. At the time, she wanted the feds to pick up the cost. But now... I am fully prepared as part of our continuing efforts to help this situation to fund the cost of the shelter. The state hasn't signed the lease agreement yet. Hochul says there's still some details to finalize. Stick around. There's more after the break. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long. And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done. And that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's hop over to New Jersey, where the city of Patterson has seen a series of scandals and allegations over its police force, culminating in a takeover by the state's attorney general's office earlier this year. It's also contending with a rise in crime. That combination leaves New Jersey's third largest city facing a complicated question. How do you clean up a police force while also fighting crime? For more, WNYC's Kerry Nolan talked with two reporters from NJ Advance Media. Sean Sullivan and Dion Johnson. Sean, it's been nearly five months since the state took over the police force. What prompted them to do this? A number of things led to this takeover. It was sort of a, a slow boiling controversy over the years. First, there was a number of cases involving the FBI arresting police officers there. 
the most famous case being members of the quote unquote robbery squad. These were officers uh, who were not investigating robberies, but perpetrating them themselves. At one point during the trial, one of the officers said the text message was introduced in evidence saying everything we do is illegal. Uh, These were officers who were shaking down drug suspects, uh, but also just average citizens. And and so that was something that was kind of in the background. And then earlier this year, there was a a police shooting involving a crisis intervention worker by the name of Najee Seabrooks. Uh, He was a guy who dedicated his life to preventing violence on the streets. And then he had some sort of mental health crisis and boarded himself up in his home. And after a very long uh, standoff with police, he was shot and killed. Uh, And that led to protests, which then led to the attorney general to take over the department. I'd like to turn to Dion for a moment. Dion, how did this incident with Najee Seabrooks prompt a broader conversation in the community about reform? You know, I think, uh, as Sean mentioned, a lot of things have happened and transpired with residents in the community and with the Paris Police Department. And I think that was just icing on the cake. You know, I speak with a lot of activists frequently, and a lot of them have a lot of distrust for the police department. So I think that is the icing on the cake, and that's what led to the state takeover. Now, Patterson is a majority Latino in Black City. Sean, what approach are police taking to repair their relationship with the community as they also try to reduce the violence? So the new officer in charge... Issa Abbasi, who's a former uh, NYPD chief, he has really zeroed in on Broadway and Patterson, which is sort of this major corridor. And this summer focused a lot of their manpower, putting officers on the street and just having a more of a presence. Broadway was a place that had a lot of drug activity, crime. And, you know, residents that I spoke to told me that, you know, they had the police had kind of ceded it to, you know, these elements and, and were not interested in having a presence there. And so all of a sudden now you're seeing a lot more police on Broadway. And at the same time, the city and the state are putting resources into, you know, drug interdiction, having people out on the street along with cops to steer people who are experiencing homelessness or drug addiction into shelters or treatment programs. They're calling it the summer strategy. They're calling it Operation All In. It goes by a bunch of different names. But basically, the idea is uh, putting a police presence on the street so that people see police uh, and then also putting in social services so that the residents are identifying that, you know, this isn't just an enforcement effort, that this is something that they're trying to uh, have more community policing. I'm curious about what residents are saying about the police presence there. What are the people who live there say? There's a big distrust within the police department and the city, obviously. And residents there are saying, you know, they're angry. They're scared. They're nervous. The history of the police department isn't one that the residents feel like has been a good one. You know, obviously, a bossy coming in and taking over is a step in the right direction. But they want a little more transparency. And I would just add that, you know, the no community is a monolith. And so, you know, you're getting different opinions here. And it's almost a generational divide uh, that you're seeing because, you know, I've talked to members of the clergy and other folks who are, you know, more closely aligned with the attorney general's office uh, and the administration there who, you know, will say the crime was a real problem and that they're able to use the parks and other resources uh, that they weren't able to use before. But as Dion said, there are other folks in the community who see, you know, basically the same old policing with a new coat of paint. Now, you mentioned that the uh, state monitor in charge of the Patterson police is uh, a former NYPD officer, Issa Abbasi. What's the mayor's relationship with him? 
I described it in the story as something of a shotgun wedding because this is not a partnership that anybody chose. The uh, attorney general's office in New Jersey has unique power to take over a police department. And that's what they did here and installed a a new officer in charge. And so uh, the relationship with the city can be very tense, particularly with the city council, members of which are not happy with the state takeover and other folks. And it is on the surface, at least right now, they're playing nice. Uh, They call each other partners in crime. They're appearing at press conferences and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, this is still a state takeover. And so uh, they have limited control in what they can do with regards to the police department. That's Sean Sullivan and Dion Johnson, both reporters with NJ Advance Media, talking with WNYC's Kerry Nolan. We're marking a major milestone for hip-hop this summer. It's the 50th anniversary of when the culture burst onto the scene in the Bronx. To mark the occasion, we're spotlighting women from our area who are leaving their own mark on the genre. My name is Kim D. Holmes. I am a dancer, teacher, and choreographer. I grew up in Spanish Harlem. I didn't know that hip-hop would take over my whole life as the inception of it began. They used to always have a block party every year in the area that I lived in, and The first song that I heard was Planet Rock. And from that song, I seen dancers that were like so flexible and just great in being able to tell stories. But as a young kid, you're just like, I just want to be a part of that, you know, because it was different. That was back in the 80s. The thing for me is I was always in dance class. My grandmother put me in dance at the age of four because she said all little girls needed grace and discipline. I still believe that to this day as I am an instructor and teacher and see how kids are able to grow from it and what goes on. For me, it was power coming to the forefront and and believing that I could do just as great as the men could. And a lot of times it was being exposed to what happens to women when they're not really aware to the experiences that's going on, like how they are kind of pushed to the side or told that they're not able to. And it was for me being encouraged to say that, no, I could take these steps. And then being able to see the trajectory of what happens when you take those steps. I changed the whole perspective for a lot of female friends of mine that was like, oh, until I seen you on TV, you know, dancing behind a salt and pepper or little Kim that I saw that I could do this, that it wasn't just about the fellas all the time. We could be a part of this and and not be so exposed of selling our bodies. You know, it was a way of standing and, and seeing women's rights and speaking about the issues and things that we go through, but through the art form of dance. Kim D. Holmes is a dancer, teacher and choreographer who grew up in Spanish Harlem. Thanks for listening to NYC Now from WNYC. Catch us every weekday, three times a day. We'll be back tomorrow.